Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. Because that describes every single one of us, at least at some point in our lives, Lord, that we all, because of our sin, we're lost. We were separated from you. There was nothing in us that was going to seek you out. And we thank you that you came while we were yet sinners and sought us out and that you died for us. This is the gospel, Lord, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want to say thank you. And I pray that now as we open to the book of Philippians that you will help us to understand with a fresh way how the gospel impacts our lives, not only to bring us into salvation in the first place, but to transform our lives from the inside out. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Back during my first three years of college, I attended a school called Truman State University that was in Northeast Missouri. And during my first two years there, I, I lived in a dorm that was called Centennial Hall. And there was one particular dorm room there that became especially significant to me in my sophomore year. And that dorm room was, was not so much the room that I lived in, even though that was also an important room. But there was this one particular dorm room that in my entire life I've only spent two afternoons in that dorm room. It's up there in that yellow circle up there up on the fifth floor of Centennial Hall. But that particular dorm room on two different afternoons, February 24th and March 3rd of 1999, was where God opened my eyes to the gospel for the very first time. You see, up to that point in my life, I had known about God. I grew up attending church. But I didn't fully understand what Jesus had to do with my life, what, what God really had to do with me. And it was in that room that one of my classmates, a friend who was getting to know named Benji, initiated a conversation with me about God and about Jesus. And God opened up my mind, opened up my heart to the realities of the gospel. You see, if you had asked me at that point in my life how I would describe my relationship with God, if I were really honest and really introspective in how I would describe that relationship, I'd probably say, well, I mean, it's kind of distant, kind of impersonal. I mean, it feels kind of vague. I really didn't think in a category of a relationship with God. I thought God's out there somewhere. You can go to church if you want to do some things related to God. But I didn't really know that much about God. But in those conversations, in that room in Centennial Hall, my mind was open to a new way to understand my relationship with God. There was a new word, not just impersonal, vague, or distant, to describe my relationship with God at that point. The new word I learned to describe my relationship with God was dead. Because in my natural state, because of my sins, I'm dead spiritually. I'm separated from God, and there's absolutely nothing that I can do to earn favor in God's eyes. No matter what sort of good works, no matter what sort of church attendance I have, I'm not going to be able to earn favor in God's eyes because spiritually I was dead. And dead people, dead things can't really do anything to help themselves. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that while we were dead, while we were sinners, Christ came to die on the cross to pay the death penalty that we deserve for our sins. And he passes on that victory to us and so that through faith in Christ, through surrendering our lives to Christ, we can be transferred from death to life, to have new life in Christ. And that was the decision that I made on the basis of two lengthy conversations on two different afternoons in, on the fifth floor of Centennial Hall in that dorm room uh, in 1999. That was a major turning point in the course of my life. Now, as I look at that time, I, I really had no idea the significance that that was going to have. I just figured, okay, <laughs> I, these are matters of life and death, and I want to choose life. But I didn't fully understand the depth and the richness of the gospel and how it was going to transform my life in the subsequent years. 
And I think this is yeah, the, the idea of the gospel that a lot of Christians have. That the gospel is really what we need to get into God's family in the first place. To, to bring us from death to life, to bring us into God's kingdom, to get us to heaven. It's our get out of hell free card. But oftentimes we lose sight of the richness and the depth of the gospel, not only as a starting point in the Christian life, but as the main influencer in every single aspect of our life and even changing the way that we view our death. And today I want to look at a passage in Philippians that, that I think as much as any other passage in Scripture illustrates the power of the gospel to transform our entire lives and to transform the way that we view death. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. Uh, we're in Philippians 1 in a series that we're calling Gospel Fluency. And gospel fluency is all about this idea of being fluent in something. If you're fluent in another language, it means that it comes naturally to you, that you're very well versed in it. You may even think or dream in that other language. I mean, it's not arduous to speak or to think in that language. It just flows because it's a part of you. What we're seeking to do is to make the gospel part of us in that way, to internalize the gospel so that whether we are just thinking about the gospel, whether we're communicating the gospel, whether we are seeking to apply the gospel to any and all situations in our lives, that that, that just flows. It's natural. It's intrinsic in us because we've so internalized the gospel. That's what we're seeking to do through the course of this gospel fluency series. And today we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And just as a reminder, Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the Greek city of Philippi. We started last week. This week we're looking at verses 12 through 26. I'm going to read this passage for us today. In verse 12, Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what he's referring to here is that he is in prison in Rome. So his imprisonment, he says, is serving to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, Paul says, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two, because I depart to be with Christ, or depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, you, that, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow 
on account of me. So there's a lot in this passage. And there's one verse that, I mean, if you didn't recognize any other verses of this passage, maybe if you haven't even read this book before, there's one verse you may be familiar with, verse 21, where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of those really popular verses that people oftentimes like to memorize. It's put on coffee mugs, put on bumper stickers for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. We're going to look at this verse a little bit more through the context of the whole passage because to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand the broader passage. So we're just going to start at the beginning of the passage and see what Paul is trying to say here when he says to live as Christ is that the focus of all of our lives should be Christ himself. He starts out talking about his imprisonment. I would call this a gospel-centered imprisonment. He's in Rome. Uh, he's, he's been in prison probably for several years at this point. And he makes it very clear that, that he is in prison because of the gospel. Because he has not stopped proclaiming the gospel. Um, he has been put in prison because the message he's proclaiming is not very popular in that world. And he's awaiting trial. He doesn't know exactly how the trial is going to turn out. But he's making it very clear that he's making the most of his time in prison by proclaiming the gospel to everyone who's around there. And I kind of think, what would it be like to be a guard there who is responsible for making sure uh, that Paul doesn't escape, just watching over and making sure he doesn't break any rules or laws or anything? What would it be like to be a guard there guarding Paul? I mean, because Paul's the guy who has said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's the guy who said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul is the guy who said you need to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel with those around you. So I imagine that whatever soldier, whatever guard was there in Paul's presence was probably getting an earful about Jesus Christ. I mean, I think of when I was a teenager. Jesus was certainly not my passion then. Cars were my passion. I mean, I subscribed to four different car magazines. Every time we were out on the road, I was watching the cars and commenting on them. And I didn't talk about that much. I... I didn't. I, like a typical teenage guy, I didn't talk all that much. Except about cars. And about cars, especially when we'd be in, the, in our van driving around, um, especially in bigger cities where you have nicer cars, I would talk, 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 talk. And it got to the point where my parents, a couple times, had to ask me, Brandon, will you please just stop talking about cars for a little while? Um, and largely that was because I was driving, probably not just them crazy, but especially driving my sister crazy. And that's kind of what happens when you're really excited and passionate about something. You can't help but just talking incessantly about it. And that's what Paul was doing here. He was talking so much about Jesus. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains because of Christ. Now, this palace guard was a group of 9,000 Roman soldiers who were stationed there in Rome. And, okay, you kind of think, okay, 9,000, all 9,000 really cycle through uh, guarding Paul? No, I don't think so. But Paul was so insistent and so persuasive in, in his message about Jesus that word had traveled throughout that whole palace guard about Paul and why he's in prison and about Jesus. And we know that there were many of them, many of the palace guard who were actually coming to faith in Christ. So there's transformation taking place. And, and Paul says that because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. And 
I mean, you think about that. That's kind of counterintuitive, I think, at least on the surface, that, okay, Paul's in prison because of the gospel, because he won't stop talking about Jesus. He's in prison. To me, there's a part of me that would think, okay, if Paul's in prison because of talking about Jesus, I know I really don't want to go to prison, so I'm not going to talk about Jesus that much. I think that's a normal human reaction. But there's also some really interesting dynamic that takes place when people stand up for something they really believe in, especially standing up for Christ. And they, even if they face persecution, even if they face imprisonment or even death, it oftentimes brings increased courage to other, other Christians who are otherwise quite timid. I think of back in the 1950s, there were five students who had just graduated from Wheaton College in suburban Chicago. It's a Christian college. And these five students headed down to Ecuador to take the gospel to this group, this tribe called the Alca Indians. And uh, you may know some of their names, Jim Elliott or Nate Saint. There have been movies and books about these people. But these five guys, they were passionate about taking the gospel down there to this tribe. And unfortunately, all five guys were killed by the tribe they were trying to reach with the gospel. Now, thankfully, God did break through this tribe. And in fact, some of the family members of those who were killed ended up taking the gospel to them and the whole tribe responded, which is tremendous. But there's something else really interesting that took place in the couple of decades following uh, the martyrdom of these five individuals. And it took place at Wheaton College. And it had to do with a number of Wheaton College grads who were signing up for full-time missionary service. The number of missionaries coming out of Wheaton College skyrocketed over the next 20 years or so. And it could largely be traced back to these five men who were courageous to take the gospel down to Ecuador to this tribe and paid for it with their lives. But the sacrifice and the commitment of these five men stood as, as a testimony that encouraged um, others who otherwise may have not been as faithful to Christ or not been faithful to this call to sacrifice. But, but that, that example was incredibly encouraging for people. I think more recently... You have the Columbine Massacre back in 1999 out in Colorado. Um, there's the well-known story of a couple of the girls there. I think of Rachel Scott, of Cassie Bernal. Um, these girls who sadly were killed in the midst of that massacre. But as the story goes, these young high school girls, uh, they were asked right before they were shot, they were asked, do you still believe in God? Do you believe in Christ? And they said yes. And then they were shot. It's amazing how as that testimony went out in the following weeks and the following months, how much it, it, it helped Christians to stand strong in their faith, to stand up even in public, even in the face of ridicule. It's really interesting to see that dynamic at play, that when you see others standing strong for their faith, even in the face of persecution, how that gives us confidence and boldness as well. And Paul says that is what was taking place because of his imprisonment and his stand for Christ. He has a gospel-centered imprisonment here. Uh, but there's something else interesting taking place in verses 15 through 18. And this is what I would call Paul's gospel-centered joy. Because Paul says, now these other people have been emboldened to share the gospel. There is a bit of a leadership void in the early church because Paul was in prison now. And so others were kind of stepping up in his place. He says some of them were doing it out of pure motives. They loved Paul. They loved Jesus. They just wanted to step up, try to help out, try to continue to get the gospel out there to people. He said there were others, though, who did not like Paul. Others who were trying to cause trouble for him. They were still preaching about Christ, 
But they were doing it in some way or another that was trying to undermine Paul's authority. It was trying to stir up some trouble for him. And look at his response. He wasn't so much um, concerned about what bad things people were saying about him. I mean, I think about myself. I'd get probably worked up about that. I wouldn't want people to say bad things about me. But he isn't getting worked up about that. Instead, he says, whether, what, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, he says, I rejoice. Paul is joyful in the midst of very challenging circumstances. He's joyful because the gospel is going out. And Paul also has a gospel-centered outlook as he looks into his future. He says in the following verses that, you know what? I don't know exactly what's going to happen here. I don't know the exact outcome of my trial, although towards the end of the passage, he seems to indicate that he's pretty confident that he's going to continue to live for a little while longer. But he has this outlook that says, you know what? Whether I live or whether I die, my ultimate prayer is that Christ will be exalted in my life. That's really the passion of his life. And then you come to verse 21 where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, a lot of people have, a lot of Christians have what they call a life verse. It's one of those verses that they really just grab onto and they say, This verse is my life verse. This verse is the thing I want to define me. Philippians 1.21 is probably one of those life verses a lot of people have chosen. I think if you look at the Apostle Paul, that would be a good description of what his life verse may have been. Even though he was the one who wrote it, he's not taking it from, from someone else who wrote it. He was the one who said this, and it shows his driving passion, his magnificent, magnificent obsession to know Jesus Christ better and to make him known. He says his driving passion in life is Jesus Christ. Jesus trumps everything else. A little bit later in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Whatever was to my profit, and I now consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is incredibly passionate about knowing Christ. That's really his purpose in life. Many people uh, talk about, okay, what's, what's my purpose in life? Well, for Paul, his purpose in life revolved around Jesus. Knowing Jesus better and making him known. And what we see here is that as Paul is reflecting on what's taking place while he's in prison, as he's talking about his future, I mean, he has this incredible gospel fluency in how it's impacting his outlook and everything. Let me give you a bit of an analogy um, about what gospel fluency is all about. Basically, what gospel fluency does is cause us to see everything through the lens of Christ. Now, you may or may not know this, um, but I wear glasses sometimes. Um, I mean, I don't wear them on Sunday mornings very much, uh, but I wear them um, when I'm working on the computer, when I'm watching TV, wear them quite a bit when I'm driving because they help me see. When I put on my glasses, I can see a whole lot more clearly. It's kind of funny how I don't wear them as much as I probably should. Um, but I, I was at the eye doctor a couple weeks ago, and I will be getting a new prescription soon. I have a new prescription. have to get the glasses made for it. And then you'll probably see me in glasses a lot more probably throughout my life. Um, but there's something cool about glasses that when you put them on, you see everything through lenses. And everything becomes much clearer um, when you put on glasses, if your eyes are such that they need glasses. And that's kind of like the gospel. That when you are looking through the lens of the gospel at the world around you, it will cause you to see everything differently with an increased clarity, an increased depth, an increased vibrancy. 
may even see it in a completely different light than you did before because gospel fluency causes us to see everything through the lens of Christ, and that changes everything. I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul. He is in prison. I would imagine that for most of us, if we were in prison, especially for, for simply something as basic as preaching about Christ, I imagine that we probably wouldn't be too excited about that. We would feel like, man, I just want to get out of here. This is really hindering, um, slowing me down in accomplishing my life goals. We might mope around a little bit, but Paul's saying, you know what? I'm in prison. That's just fine because God's given me continued open doors to preach about Christ here. He's making the most of his opportunities. Even in the midst of very challenging, dismal circumstances, he's looking at that through the lens of the gospel. And that changes his perspective on his circumstances. And it can do the same for us if we are looking at things through the lens of the gospel. Because in everything we do, even the hardest or most mundane of circumstances, if we look at things through the lens of the gospel, we can be seeing how God can use these circumstances to draw us closer to Christ and use these circumstances so that we can help others to know him also. And so, so we look at this idea of, of looking through the lens of the gospel and, and that really does affect our sense of purpose in life. So many times when people talk about their purpose in life, they, they, they define it in, sen- in some sort of sense of their circumstances. If you're, if you're a student in, in middle school or high school or college, Oftentimes, you'll define your purpose in life being something about doing well in school. Oftentimes, people define their purpose in life in terms of getting some sort of success in their jobs or in hobbies or something like that. They define their purpose of life. Maybe, maybe they don't um, explicitly define it this way, but they, they're defining their sense of, of worth in terms of athletic success, in terms of money, in terms of their looks. But we have to recognize that all these purposes will fade over time because there comes a point where we won't have the physical beauty anymore, where we don't have the athletic talent, where we get laid off from our job, where the stock market crashes and we lose half of our savings overnight. There are so many things that happen that if our purpose in life isn't anything of this world, it will ultimately fade. Or if nothing else, death will come and cause an end to it all. And that's why as we look to Paul and his purpose of life, why, why that should be so compelling for us as well, that to live is Christ, that Christ is the focus. And this, this applies to all of us. And it really has very little to do with our actual vocation in terms of saying, well, if I really want Christ to be my focus, I need to go into full-time professional ministry. It's not that way. Having this gospel fluency, this gospel lens through which we're looking at everything means that no matter what we are doing, whether you're preparing a sermon or whether you're working in a factory, whether you're planting plants, whether you are sitting at a desk working on the computer, whether you're at home watching TV, that, that whatever you're doing, you're looking at things through the lens of the gospel so that you can ask, how can I be growing closer to Christ through this and how can I help others grow closer to Christ through this as well? That's what it means to be gospel fluent. And that's what Paul is trying to do while he is in prison here. And we do know that death will overtake us all at some point. And according to the world, when you die, that's a, that's a loss. Because, you know, everything you've worked for, I mean, it may still be here, but you're gone. But Paul has a very different perspective because he says the result of death is gain. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we wonder why. Why is it gain to die like this? Well, it's gain... Because when you die, you will be with Christ. 
Paul says, verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far than remaining in this world. And even having fruitful ministry in this world, Paul says it's better to depart this world because then he will be with Christ. We think about heaven. Heaven is a very comforting uh, idea for, I imagine, for all of us. Especially when our faith is in Christ, we have the confidence of heaven. But we need to ask, what, is our, what are we so excited about with heaven? I mean, heaven will be a great place. It will be a place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more frustrations of living in this broken world. It will be a place that we will be reunited with loved ones who also believe in Christ. But if our, our, if our description of why we're excited about heaven is about all those things, but doesn't really contain much about being incredibly excited about being united with Christ, being right there in his presence, then we don't have a fully biblical view of what heaven is like. Because for Paul, heaven is beautiful. Heaven is great. Heaven is gain because then he is with Christ. Really what's happened at that point is just a continuation of his passion for Christ from this life into the next. Now we have to understand death is still not easy. Paul, um, I mean, he would be most likely beheaded later on. That's what history tells us. We know that a lot of Christians faced a lot of hardships through the years, a lot of very painful deaths. We know that death causes a lot of pain for those who are left here. I was faced with this a couple of years ago. Um, I had blood clot in my leg. I mean, I felt like a walking time bomb for, for a number of days so that blood clot got stabilized. And I was reflecting on that a lot. I wasn't afraid of death in and of itself. But the thing that, that I was most concerned about was my family, of the, the loss they would feel if I wasn't here any longer. And so we have to recognize death still isn't easy, even Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But death, for those who die, whose faith is in Christ, death is gain. Because then you get to be with Christ. I think of D.L. Moody, the famous uh, 19th century evangelist. He, he said at one point, he said, you know what? Someday you're going to read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. And I think that's, that's the perspective that we should have on death. Is that if our faith is in Christ, I mean, don't have that perspective if you aren't trusting in Christ. But if you are trusting in Christ, death is gain. It's better to be with Christ than to be in this broken, struggling world. Death is really like a homecoming, of just coming home, a fulfillment of all of our deepest desires to know Christ more deeply. Now, now we're talking about the gospel fluency as far as these lenses that we're looking through. And there is the reality that many people who should wear glasses don't wear them as much as they should. And, I mean, I showed you my glasses earlier that I wear. I don't wear them all that much. Can anyone see these? Why are you laughing at them? Goggles? Coke bottles? These were the glasses I wore through half my life. I mean, not, not just this pair. I wore other pairs, too. But I was born legally blind. I wore gla- I mean, these glasses are a full quarter-inch thick. Um, I wore these without complaining one bit because without them I could not see. But now that I, um, that I don't have to wear glasses, but they still help, I don't wear them nearly as much. And, you know, there are many different reasons. One is, you know, I kind of like the way I look without glasses. We feel like we look goofy with glasses. We wonder what are other people going to think about us if we wear glasses. And it's the same way with the gospel. 
many times we don't really want to put on the lenses of the gospel. We don't want to be known for being identified with Jesus because we're wondering what are other people going to think of us. But if we do that, we aren't seeing the way God designed us to see. We aren't seeing the world clearly. We aren't really living out the gospel at that point. So, so my challenge and encouragement for each one of us is that we will put on the lenses of the gospel, that we review every single circumstance, every opportunity through the lens of Christ, asking how can we grow closer to Christ through this and how can we help others come to know Christ as well. There's a, a famous old saying, don't know where it originated, but it basically says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To live as Christ and to die as gain. That's a big part of gospel fluency. My prayer is that gospel will sink into us to the point where everything we do, everything we see, everything we experience will be done and seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to remove the blinders from our eyes. Thank you that even in my life, uh, some 13, 14 years ago, that you opened my eyes to the fact that I was dead spiritually and could have life through Christ. And I pray for anyone here who does not yet have that life in Christ, that you will be at work in their lives in that same way. And thank you, Lord, that the gospel doesn't stop there, but the gospel transforms us. And I pray that you will help us, Lord, to internalize the gospel so that when, whether we're seeking to understand the gospel or communicate it or just apply it, that we will see very clearly and very easily how that gospel applies in everything we do. We love you and thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.